You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 207, The Satanic Panic. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to another episode of You Don't Know Flat. Today is August 18th, 2021, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. On today's episode of You Don't Know Flack, we will be talking about the satanic panic of the 1980s. I don't normally give warnings on my show topics uh, prior to the show, but I'm going to throw a few out. Number one, there's some topics on this particular episode that some people may find triggering. There's some discussion of child abuse uh, and um, different things revolving around uh, satanic rituals. So if that's not for you, this episode's not for you. Uh, number two, uh, this kind of goes without saying with number one, but this episode might not be appropriate for children. So if you normally listen to, uh, I mean, I, there's not going to be anything overly, uh, there, there won't be anything graphic or anything, uh, you know, uh, vulgar in the episode, but... If uh, listening to the historical account of the satanic panic in the 1980s is not something that you want your children to listen to, again, this episode might not be the one for them. Uh, And finally, I will do my best to state when I am stating my opinion versus historical fact. Uh, I try to treat every subject and every group and every listener with respect. So if I make a comment uh, disparaging something that you believe strongly in, I suspect this episode might get me more feedback (laughs) than I'm used to getting. Uh, But just know that uh, uh, there are opinions, there are facts, uh, and uh, my intention is not to attack any individual. Uh, So I will uh, do my best to try to um, delineate between between the two as the show goes on. That's a lot of prefacing before we get started. Uh, and I should have done all that while I was loading the notes for this episode, which I now have to load anyway. So while I load those into my handy-dandy Commodore 64, we have a few minutes to chat on this week's loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Well, I hope everybody is having a wonderful summer, and I'm glad that you are spending at least a little sliver of that summer listening to an episode of You Don't Know Flack. Uh, I spent the majority of my weekend last weekend moving my son into his first apartment. Now, my son uh, next week will be a sophomore in college. In his freshman year, he lived in a dorm which was fairly miserable. It was a fairly miserable experience. The dorms uh, that he stayed in were 10 foot by 16 foot rooms. And those are for two people. Uh, He and his roommate both chose, you could choose different configurations and they chose bunk beds, uh, separate bunk beds that had lofts under, or uh, the bed was on top 
and underneath was a desk area. My son is six foot one and spent the majority of the semester hunched over a laptop underneath his bed. Uh, the room also had uh, armoires for their clothing, and then of course they brought every single thing they owned. So there were everything from electric guitars to 3D printers to whatever else, <laughs> skateboards, whatever they'd filled the room with. So. Um, 10 foot by 16 foot is not a large area to begin with for two people to live in. And I think they were fairly miserable. And unfortunately, due to COVID, uh, their classes were uh, canceled for in-person classes. And so everything was done online. So they spent a year inside their dorm taking classes. I don't think they had a very good time. So uh, this year, <laughs> right now, they are going to be starting uh, in-person classes and uh, it was actually a lot cheaper to, for him to uh, move into an apartment with a couple of his classmates than stay in the dorms. It's 50% cheaper, more than 50% cheaper, <laughs> uh, which is crazy. So uh, that's what we did. He told us the apartment number and he said, uh, quote, I believe it's on the first floor because there's a one in the apartment number. Well, <laughs> uh, it was on the third floor. And so my wife and I spent uh, a couple hours carrying electric guitars and 3D printers and bags of clothes, <coughs> excuse me, and all sorts of things like that up and down uh, from the ground to the third floor. So uh, good times for us, but he seems right now to be pretty happy and, and um, uh, it, it's very odd as a parent, you know, when, when your kids are, let's say, three years old. You don't remember your life. I don't remember the majority of my life when I was three years old. So it's tough to relate. Um, but my son is uh, uh, 19 and he's moving into an apartment. And I definitely remember when I was 19 and moving into an apartment. I want to say it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. It does seem like it was a long time ago. But I remember it clearly. You know, it's it's uh, I remember the stories. I remember the things we did. I remember setting up my computer and setting up a Nintendo <laughs> in the living room, uh, all that sorts of things. So, uh, it, it's definitely, I can relate to what he's going through now, even if, uh, even if they don't believe us. But, um, now while we were in, uh, he's going to college in, in Norman, Oklahoma. And while we were there, uh, there was a news story about a year ago that I remembered hearing, and I've been wanting to stop by this place again. And this is the computer factory outlet. Now this is not a store that is currently open. Uh, this is a story that appeared, I guess, on Reddit, and um, uh, there was a, a couple different articles that appeared online about it, but this is a computer store that um, operated in the late 90s and possibly very, very early 2000s, uh, and, th and there was some sort of disagreement between the store owner and the strip mall owner. I believe the strip mall uh, closed down and all the stores were closed down and locked, and uh, that was it. And so the stores in this strip mall have been frozen in time. Specifically, this computer store has, uh, it looks, uh, <clears throat> I want to say it looks like it did on, on that day, which it does, but I, I don't know what was going on. I don't know if they were trying to move things out, uh, because it's a mess inside, Um but you can walk up to this store that's in a strip mall and peer through the windows. Then the windows are caked with dirt. I had to clean some of the dirt off. 
And there's a very magical thing that happens if you've ever done this. Uh, you know, standing five feet away from the front windows, the windows are tinted and it's difficult to see in. Uh, you know, it just kind of looks like a dark room with maybe vague shapes inside. But if you walk up and put your camera and place it up against the glass, it sees through it like it's not even there. I mean, that sounds silly to say you're seeing through a window like it's not there, but the tent goes away, the dirt goes away, everything that was blocking your vision, and you're just peering inside this place. Um, there are uh, stacks of uh, CRT old school monitors. There's uh, boxes and boxes of Dell computers and gateway computers inside there. Now, everybody that sees these pictures, I, I took about 20 or 30 pictures and everybody that sees the picture says, you know, um, well, you should contact the, the owner and see if you can get that stuff. Uh, I mean, hundreds of people have contacted the owner. And I don't fully understand the, the legal ramifications of what has happened, but uh, the owner can't get in to get to the stuff, and the strip mall uh, owner won't let them in. So, you know, other people have said, well, you know, you could probably break in. Well, you probably could. Like, I really don't want to get a felony for stealing a 486 <laughs> or maybe an early Pentium computer, you know. Um, but uh, uh, the pictures just don't do it justice because it's it's not like one store at a strip mall. It's a huge corner of the strip mall. I mean, it's got to be, I don't know, two to 3,000 square foot area that's just filled with uh, paperwork and boxes and computer. There's a display and there's all sorts of boxes and stuff. It's hard to see exactly what it is, you know, some of the contents of the store are. But uh, it's it's a very interesting, and now that I know where it's at, you know, it's, it's about five to 10 minutes away from my son's apartment. So it's not hidden. It's just off the road, but it's one of the millions of things that uh, you know, we drive by every day and, and people don't, don't see. And then of course, uh, once you know the secret and you go up there and take a look, uh, you know, you can, you can peer inside and see what's there, but it was interesting to, uh, to stop by. That's for sure. So I will uh, be following, uh, any updates, you know, if they ever open this place up and say, Hey, we're going to sell everything off. I'll be the first guy in line. Uh, I would, I would love to, uh, buy some of that old hardware and take a look at it. But until then, I think, it's just going to sit there and, and slowly deteriorate. It's, it's, it's a strange thing for sure. Uh, because I'm so into retro things, I thought I would throw this into the news. Uh, last week, I watched the new documentary titled Val, which you can watch on Amazon Prime. Uh, it is the documentary that was created by uh, Val Kilmer. It is uh, sort of his memoir, I suppose. I watched it not knowing that much about Val Kilmer. I know some of the movies uh, he starred in. And I've always really liked Val Kilmer because of the movie Real Genius. You know, I was right at that age where I was probably close to the same age as Mitch, who's the younger college student that's a genius that goes off to, to college and becomes roommates with uh, uh, Val Kilmer's character. And I always liked him in this movie. I always liked that movie. It's a very 80s movie. Um, but as I was watching this documentary, I only know a few stories about Val Kilmer, and most of them don't paint him in a good light. They 
talk about how he's difficult to work with and and was demanding on sets and, and um, in some cases did some pretty awful things. There's a story how on uh, the uh, set of the island of Dr. Moreau, how he actually burned a cameraman's uh, the side of his face with a lit cigarette on purpose. So there's some bad stories. And as I watch this documentary, the documentary leaves out a lot of that information. Uh, it covers the island of Dr. Moreau and the making of it. And he basically says, you know, this movie was not saving or, you know, was uh, beyond saving. And and he talks a little bit how it was Marlon Brando's fault and the director's fault. But he really doesn't take ownership of the things that he did that actually, I mean, there was some points during filming where he was actively trying to sabotage uh, the the production. In fact, one of the things he doesn't mention is that he signed on to the movie and shortly before they began shooting, he decided to switch characters. He said he wouldn't do the character that he signed on for and they had to find another actor to cover his other role. He, and he was going to be the primary uh, star of the film. So I, I think, I don't know, that it's part of the problem with autobiographies or memoirs is that there's not a lot of fact checking and you can certainly leave out the bad parts of your own life. And I just felt like it, it was a bit disingenuous, you know, I also didn't like the fact that he talked a lot about a lot of the roles that he took as a younger actor and how he didn't enjoy any of them. He said he didn't want to do top gun and that he was forced to do it out of uh, a contract obligation. And it's things when you, when you hear, uh, actors say things like that. It really kind of takes away from the, the movie experience for me. I should also say, if you're planning on watching this, or even if you're uh, not planning on watching it, is that uh, Val Kilmer has had uh, two tracheotomies. And so he can only speak now. He had throat cancer a few years ago. He can only speak by covering the holes uh, in his throat and most of what he says is very, very difficult to understand. So they have uh, his son, who sounds very much like a young Val Kilmer, do most of the commentary and the documentary. So it does kind of feel like Val Kilmer is, is talking to you, even though it's someone else's voice. But it's very sad, you know, when when someone who makes a living off of their, their looks and their voice and to see them when, when something like this has, has struck them later in life. But... Uh, but because of this, I've been going through and watching uh, a bunch of old Val Kilmer movies. I just watched The Island Dr. Moreau, which is bizarre uh, in its own right, and uh, a couple of other ones. And um, I haven't watched Tombstone. <laughs> Tombstone's on my list, so I'm going to watch that uh, sometime over the next week. Uh, and now we're going to get to uh, the segment where one of my Patreon users asked me a question. Uh, this episode's question comes from Mike D. And uh, I knew this was going to come up sooner, sooner or later uh, over the past couple of weeks after seeing all the uh, uh, buzz online. Mike D. wants to know my opinion of the newly announced Amiga 500 mini computer. So uh, first of all, let me just say that uh, um, I'll explain if you're not familiar with the mini computers. These these mini computers are kind of like if you if you saw the mini, um, the NES mini or the Super Nintendo mini. These are uh, scaled down versions of the original consoles. They don't use cartridges uh, or in the computer cases, disk drives. Um, they have games built into them. And then in some uh 
instances, you can load your own games into them, sometimes legally and sometimes by breaking the rules. Um, but the company making this uh, Amiga 500 is the same people that made the Mini, the Commodore 64 Mini, um, which is a uh, one-four size of the original Commodore 64, and it has 64 games built in. It came with a joystick. Uh, the, the keyboard doesn't function. Uh, it's just a molded keyboard, but you can plug in a USB keyboard if you want. You can plug in your own USB controllers if you want. And most importantly, uh, you don't have to jailbreak it or anything. It is built so that you can find all the Commodore 64 disk images, put them on a USB stick and plug them in, and you can load uh, any game that you want on, on this Commodore 64 Mini. And so after... Uh, a couple of years of sales of the Commodore 64 Mini, they released a full-sized reproduction with a functional keyboard, and that's kind of colloquially referred to as the C64 Maxi. I've talked about these on, on previous episodes, and this company has been talking about, uh, they've been teasing the release of an Amiga, a Mini Amiga, and so they announced it. Last week, uh, if you're watching the video version of this podcast on YouTube, you can see a, uh, a picture of it. I can't tell if this is a rendering or if this is an actual picture, but uh, it is a scaled-down model of the Amiga 500 computer, and it comes with a joystick. Uh, it's a gamepad that, that's shaped similar. It's this U-shaped controller that's shaped almost like the old CD32 uh, Amiga controller. There are four buttons on the right. There's a start and a select in the middle and a D-pad uh, or D-pad buttons yeah, on the left. Uh, the system also comes with a two-button USB mouse that is made to look like an original Amiga mouse. There were a lot of Amiga programs, including uh, it came with a GUI operating system that you would called Workbench that you would maneuver with a mouse. So having a, a mouse hooked up to this thing is a plus. Uh, right now, they're saying that it's going to ship with 25 games built in, which is less than the C64 Mini had. But these games are bigger on the Amiga, so maybe I'm wondering if they don't have the same amount of storage, and uh, which would just mean fewer games and the same amount of, uh, of RAM or whatever that they have, you know, ROM that they have set aside for these games. Um, it will... Emulate basically an Amiga 500 or an Amiga 1200. There's different chipsets inside. So this should be compatible with uh, almost any Amiga software and any games. Uh, so it does, I guess, uh, OCS and ECS and, and AGA and all these different modes. I'm not an Amiga expert. Um, so it, it's an interesting device. Now, I will tell you this. The Commodore 64 Mini is available right now on Amazon for $37. Uh, that is a uh, a price, uh, it, it's much cheaper than it was when it launched. I think when it launched, it was in the $70 range, somewhere around there. So uh, the value has dropped over a couple of years. This Amiga 500 Mini is being advertised in the U.S. I believe the price is $129, um, $139, somewhere around there. So it's significantly more expensive. Now, I will say that Amiga emulation is a little more challenging than some other systems. It's not 
as simple as downloading an emulator and then clicking on a ROM and starting. There are things you have to do. You have to get uh, a BIOS. You have to get, and some of these things are like the BIOS for the Amiga is licensed. So you're either going to do some shady stuff or you can purchase it, you know, purchase a license. Um, and then there's different types. You can emulate either um, ADF, which is the floppy. It's kind of the same as like a D64 for the Commodore 64 disk image. Um, or there's WHD load, which this will support, which is a virtual hard drive where the games are installed. So there's a little bit more to it. So I will give them that. Uh, also, I think the price probably reflects them having to license either the operating system or uh, the BIOS that they're having to put in here. So I'm sure that's part of the price. 129 is a little steep, I think. But the bigger question is always who is the audience for these things? So if you think of someone like me for the Commodore 64, obviously I do Sprite Castle and Commodore 64 podcast. I have real Commodore 64 hardware and I use emulation and I have a mister. Uh, so I have all these other ways to play Commodore 64 stuff. So you would think that I would not be the target audience for the C64 mini, but I do own one. I purchased one uh, because it looked cute. And I wanted to play with it, and it is sitting on a shelf behind me <laughs> on display. Um, and so I don't know about the Amiga 500 Mini. Uh, I feel like 129 is too much to spend for something that I'm not going to use that I'm just going to put on display. Uh, so if if for people that aren't going to use it, I think that price might be too high. Um, and then you've got Amiga aficionados or retro enthusiasts. Uh, I have an Amiga sitting back there on my shelf. I have an Amiga 1200 sitting there. I've got a 500 laying around here somewhere. Um, so you've got people that still have the original hardware. And then there is, of course, emulation and, again, on the mister. So I just wonder if that price is a little bit too high to get those casual people. You know, I think $37 for the C64 Mini, uh, yeah, I'll buy that and, and put it on the shelf. And if I, I never use it, you know, I'm out 37 bucks. But being out 137 bucks would be a little bit different. So I don't know. I, I'm interested to see how well it works. I'm sure it's going to work just fine. Um, and um, see how easy it is to add images, uh, you know, through USB and see what they add through the, the additional firmwares and stuff. So I don't know. Uh, it's kind of a wait and see right now. I don't think that I will be pre-ordering it. But like a lot of stuff, I'm going to wait on the sidelines and see uh, – See what happens with it. So um, that was a question submitted by one of my Patreon supporters. So don't forget that uh, all my Patreon supporters uh, get special things. They get behind the scene blog posts. They get weekly videos. They get access to uh, the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server. And they get all kinds of other additional perks. So if you'd like to find out more about supporting the show, Go to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara to find more about the show. If you don't want to support the show through Patreon, that is perfectly fine. But one other way you can support the show is by sharing links, links, I say, <laughs> on social media uh, to the show, to episodes, or you can always leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at robohara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Robcast. 
Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server or leave a message on my podcast hotline, which is 405-486-YDKF. All my show notes are loaded. I'm ready to go. So let's get started talking about this week's topic, which is the Satanic Panic. Historically, we can point to certain events that define eras. And one example that I like to cite happened in the late 1960s. Uh, in, in the late 1960s, we had, uh, I wasn't alive yet, but we had Woodstock. And that kind of summarized what the 60s were about. It was peace and love, and it was people getting together and having this big free concert and all these great things. Um, and at the end of the summer, we have the Charles Manson murders, and which were uh, a horrible event where people uh, were um, not just murdered, they were slaughtered to make a point. It was, it was very, very graphic. And you can really put a pin <laughs> on the timeline and say, that's the end of the 60s. I mean, that's the end of the hippie movement. That's the end of all those things. The Manson murders are just kind of this uh, stop point in the timeline uh, of that entire era. You know, you can just really point to that moment and say that's where things changed. And so over time, there's a lot of examples of that. Uh, and in the early 1980s, there was an event uh, that involved a young child named Adam Walsh. Now, Adam Walsh uh, was uh, just a, a little kid, and he was hanging out in a Sears uh, store in Florida. He was actually playing with an Atari 2600 kiosk, if you remember those. Uh, they were set up inside uh, certain stores where you could go in and you could play Atari 2600 games. And he was, I guess, some sort of scuffle uh, broke out between all the kids and Adam and all the kids were asked to leave the store, even though he was a, a little kid. And there seems to be some confusion. I believe the security guard thought that Adam was with the other boys. And Adam didn't want to tell him that his mom was still inside shopping. So he went outside the store by himself. Uh, he was ultimately abducted uh, and he was murdered. Uh, he was uh, gruesomely murdered. And this was in the summer of 1981. Now, Adam Walsh's dad is John Walsh. And you may know that name. John Walsh went on to host uh, America's Most Wanted, you know. Uh, but that event in the early 80s, 1981, the summer of 81, um, really started this idea of stranger danger. Now, it's never just one event, you know, but really you can just point to this thing and say this is kind of when stranger danger began being talked about. You know, uh, prior to that, I mean, really, 81 is kind of the tail end of the 70s, right? And it's, um, you know, if you've ever seen movies about the 70s, it's kids riding their bikes all day. They're not checking in with their parents. They're not, people don't know where they are. It's just kids wandering neighborhoods and, and walking around cities and doing whatever they want. And then all of a sudden, you know, this kid uh, is abducted and murdered and it was a random stranger. And so parents started telling their kids, uh, you know, beware of strangers and not just beware of 
scary-looking strangers, be afraid of all strangers. Uh, I was seven years old when uh, all this took place, uh, eight years old, and I remember my mom like going into department stores and my mom telling me, uh, like if I had to go to the bathroom, I would go into the bathroom and my mom would stand there with her foot uh, stuck inside the, the door so that I, you know, she said, if, if there's somebody tries to get you, you yell, <laughs> which is a terrifying thing to tell an eight-year-old, you know. And she would tell me, when you go in there, look underneath all the stalls to make sure somebody's not hiding in there that might kill you. Well, that's a, that's a great thing <laughs> for every eight-year-old to worry that, you know, I mean, that murder lies in every bathroom stall uh, across America. I remember... Uh, being a kid one time, and my mom and my grandma uh, went shopping for uh, uh, there was like a a fabric store. They would they would go buy fabric so that they could sew things. And my sister and I would stay in the car. And I remember my mom would say, you know, if it if it gets too hot, you feel like you're gonna pass out, roll the window down. And if scary people come, you roll the window up. And so my sister and I just sat in the back seat of this station wagon just constantly rolling the windows up and down you know trying to keep murderers out and and then letting the hot air out so we could breathe (laughs) alternating between these two things Um, i also remember at this time my mom uh and uh taught or let my sister and i each choose our own safe word and you had to have a safe word so that if someone came to you in a store and uh uh, you know, said, hey, your mom's outside and, and you need to go out there, then you would say, what's the safe word? And if they didn't know it, uh, then they were a, a bad guy. They were trying to trying to get you. <laughs> so we had our little, our little secret uh, uh, safe word. So I do remember this uh, story one time. I was at Walmart playing uh, uh, on the Atari kiosk that they had. And I've got a picture right now of the slide. I believe this is the kiosk that is owned by uh, Jason at Trade Games uh, up in St. Louis. And the the thing was you would just walk up there and you would play games and other kids would come and play games uh, while your parents were shopping. And I I was playing games with this other boy and the boy's dad walked up and said something like, hey, uh, we have an Atari at home. If you like Atari, uh, you should come over and uh, and play games with us. And of course, what I heard was he wanted me to leave the store with him. And I just started screaming. Uh, and I mean, this, uh, the, the family was, uh, uh, Indian, uh, like East Indian. And this, the man's look on his face, you know, he had no idea what to do. And these people from Walmart came over to see what was going on. I mean, they they paged my mom. It was a big deal. You know, I thought that I was, this was it. (laughs) I was getting abducted at the uh, Atari kiosk in Walmart in Oklahoma. But um, uh, by the way, I did not end up going to their house. (laughs) They did not invite me over. But the uh, Adam Walsh uh, abduction and murder was the beginning of stranger danger of just not trusting other people. Now, the beginning of what is referred to in the 80s as the satanic panic is really tied to two separate events. Uh, The first one was this book that was released called Michelle Remembers. Now, Michelle Smith 
was a woman who started seeing a, um, I don't know if it was a psychologist or psychiatrist, I guess a psychiatrist, um, and was having all these troubles in her life. And her uh, psychiatrist, his name was Lawrence Pazder, who was a co-author of this book, uh, said, well, let's do hypnotic regression therapy. And so we're going to go back into your childhood and see what terrible things happened to you that may have affected your life to this point. Uh, And so as he started doing this therapy with her, they discovered together that she had memories of uh, being basically abused and tortured by members of the satanic church of some satanic uh, cult and that she was um, forced to participate in these uh, uh, satanic rituals. And she even went on to say that at one point she was uh, stolen or kidnapped and put in a cage and stored in a cage for 81 days um, while this ritual went on. It's almost three months. And this story apparently concludes when... um, Uh, She has been whipped and she has been scarred and tortured and burned and all these things. And then uh, literally, she says that uh, the Archangel Michael and the Virgin Mary and other people uh, appeared and healed all her wounds. So um, there's some questions to her. the believability, her credibility to this story. There, there are uh, some questions. And as people began to research this book, one of the things they went and did was they went back and got her elementary school records looking for some period of time where she was missing for 81 days, and there aren't any. There are no unexcused absences uh, for any length of time. So the memories and the things that are in this book, the stories factually don't check out. Um, her family was interviewed, her siblings, and they said she kind of has a a long history of making up stories. (laughs) Um, and so as people begin to go through and, and fact check the book, almost every single thing that she said was a fact has been disproven, uh, to not be real. Now, the thing about books like this is regardless whether or not they're real, they can affect society. Um, I, I don't have this in my notes, but an example, think about uh, the Amityville horror. Uh, most in most instances, almost everything that is written in the book Amityville horror has been proven to not have actually happened. Um, not the original, uh, what was the guy's name? William uh, DeFeo. Uh, those murders obviously did happen, but all these things about um you know, the, the house being haunted and hearing voices and, and things like that. Um, there's, there's some, some stories about how those, those stories, uh, were concocted and why they were concocted afterwards over, a, apparently a, a bottle of wine between uh, some lawyers and the people who lived in the house. But anyway, uh, the, the point is that a lot of people don't know that they just know, Oh, there was the Amityville horror, you know? And, and so it's the same thing with this memoir is people go, Oh, there was this lady. And their takeaway is that there was a lady who was, uh, abused by these satanic cults where in reality, factually it didn't happen. Sometimes it doesn't matter <laughs> whether or not it happened or not. Uh, the other incident inciting incident, 
took place at the McMartin Preschool. And there's a, this is a very famous court case. You can look it up. It's called the McMartin Preschool Trial. Uh, it started with a young child who came home and was having uh, trouble using the restroom. And the mother uh, examined her son and said she believed that her son had been sexually abused. So, uh, and she believed the perpetrator was her ex-husband who worked at the preschool. So, uh, first of all, in really bad police reporting, uh, the police sent a message to the parents of every child at this preschool. There were about 200 children. And uh, actually, I think there were more than that. I think at some point there was like 400. No, I think there's 200 at the time. Uh, Sent a letter to the parents and said, Hey, we're not sure, but we think uh, some of the children may have been uh, molested. And so if you see anything weird, let us know. Well, then every single parent contacted them. And so they had a, a guy on staff, uh, a, a child psychologist who began uh, in, interrogating, is not the right word, but questioning these children and getting their stories. Uh, this became a legendary case in how not to question children. Uh, they have their recordings of these uh, interviews, these sessions, and it's a lot of leading the witness. They would say things like, you know, then the guy did this bad thing, right? And the kids would just nod their head, um, you know, so it wasn't the children coming up with the accusations. It was the adults staining it and then having the children say yes or no. Uh, so it, it wasn't a good interrogation technique to begin with. Um, when the children were allowed to speak, uh, many of them said they had been sexually abused. Um, but they also said that the people at the daycare were witches and could fly, um, which is difficult to believe. Um, at some point, they were presented with pictures, uh, picture boards to try to identify who their abusers had been. And several of the children selected Chuck Norris <laughs> off of the window, off the, uh, uh, <clears throat> the lineup. So uh, there, there wasn't a lot of credibility to these children's stories. And, and then, of course, the longer they were questioned, the truth got muddled in here somewhere. Uh, ultimately, I believe 400 kids were questioned and the police became uh, convinced that most of them had been sexually abused, um, and not just sexually abused, but as part of satanic rituals. These kids told stories about how babies were being flushed down the toilet and how the entire classrooms had been taken underground in a series of tunnels where they were forced to eat babies and, and do all these horrible things. Uh, and so you would think... At some point, the adults would go, this doesn't sound very credible. Uh, instead, what they did was arrested everyone who worked, well, not everyone, but uh, seven adults who worked at the preschool, and they were charged with a total of 361 counts of child abuse. Um, this historically, I don't know if this is still the case, but at the time, this was the longest and most expensive case that was ever tried in the United States. Uh, it went on for seven years. Um, these kids, you know, when they were, were asked about things, they said, oh, well, we weren't, you know, a lot of them said, well, we were abused um, <clears throat> in these tunnels. 
that go underneath the school. But other kids said, no, we were put on hot air balloons and we were taken somewhere else. We went on hot air balloon rides, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, and there was another thing where, uh, there, there, you know, like when kids say things like nanny, nanny, boo-boo, stick your head in doo-doo. <laughs> we should say that more often. I should say that more often. Uh, there was a thing that kids would say, and I remember hearing this at the playground all the time, where they would say is what you... What you see is what you are. You're a naked movie star. Or what you say is what you are. You're a naked movie star. Well, these prosecutors said they were forced to play this naked movie star game, you know. And then later on, they were like, the kids said, no, we just used to say that on the on the playground. There was no no game. They weren't making us be naked movie stars. It's literally like the prosecutors say, you know, and then they were forced to stick their head in doo-doo after the witches said, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. <laughs> I mean, it's just really... Um, if you take, obviously, if the children are being abused, that's not a joking matter. But the way that this thing was presented was just ridiculous. And you would think at some point cooler heads would prevail, but they didn't. Um, and so uh, this case went on for seven years. Uh, the main guy, the ex-husband that was accused was in jail for seven years, and at the end of it, and this is the real takeaway of this story, is that uh, n there were no convictions. All 361 convictions or um, uh, charges were, they were found innocent. I mean, they, there was no charges that stuck. Uh, in fact, uh, the woman who had started this whole thing, Judy Johnson, uh, was mentally ill. They found her that she was mentally ill, and she said that her husband would come home and and, uh, and not only abuse her, but that he could also fly. Uh, there's a lot of stories about people flying in these things. Um, so uh, I, I think I said 361, but it's 321 charges of child abuse uh, spread between these seven people. Um, some of them had million-dollar bail. Some had no bail. Uh, and uh, it just went on. Th this case was such a big deal that in, I believe it was 1990, uh, they they raised the property. I mean, they mowed down uh, this preschool because the whole the idea was so tainted, you know, that, that horrible things had happened here. One of the things after they did, they went to go search for these uh, underground tunnels. And, of course, there were no underground tunnels and and um later in later years as these kids got older uh, a lot of them recanted they're like yeah no nothing happened it was just the police wouldn't let us go until we said yes so we would say yes you know so um so again you have this event the uh mcmartin preschool trial in conjunction with uh michelle remembers the memoir and so you have this these two events that um, that are kind of pushing this agenda that there is mass um, Satanism cults operating in the United States underground, that our children are not safe, uh, that you drop them off at preschool and there could be underground tunnels where people are being, your children are being forced to eat babies. Uh, and, and so... I don't know how it got out of control, but it got out of control. Uh, I remember as a little kid, uh, there being a special on TV about this. And my mom sent me to my room. She was like, you don't need to be watching this. Go to your room. And so I went to my room and I had a little black and white TV. And so I turned it on and I watched it. I just listened to these adults 
saying all these things like, yeah, you know, and of course these adults would say, would say things, you know, oh, and I don't know if it was to get attention, um, but there's always this, the the aspect of this, and we'll get into this, but there's always this aspect of where are all these missing people? Like they say, oh, I was, I was taken to this, uh, you know, this, this uh, satanic ritual and these people were dismembered and they made us drink the blood and you go, well, who was dismembered? Like, was it a guy? Was it Joe? <laughs> like, where's Joe? Like, can we not narrow down who these people, it was always anonymous people. So there were a lot of people supposedly getting dismembered and sacrificed and stuff, but um, maybe they were all missing person cases. I don't know. Um, so in the early 80s, there there becomes this idea that, um, that Satanism is winning people over. You know, I mean, that it is attracting the youth and it's making the youth do terrible things. Uh, I remember there was a lot of talk about... Um, Ozzy Osbourne, you know, and he had his, uh, um, when he started releasing his solo albums, he had Bark at the Moon, and he had dressed up like this, uh, um, you know, vampire or kind of a a wolfman guy, and he would go, you know, howl at the moon, he would bark at the moon, uh, and people were like, oh, this guy is is satanic, you know, this is terrible. Uh, I also remember Motley Crue, you know, their, their second album, Shout at the Devil, um, they, they made, you know, this big, they, they downplayed it when they got some negative feedback, but it was, it was for press, you know, um, uh, Nikki six would say in these interviews, you know, he, he would kind of, kind of smirk and he would say like, we're not seeing shout with the devil. We're seeing shout at the devil. Well, you know, that's not what they were doing. And they, their second album, the original, uh, album cover has this big pentagram, <laughs> on the front cover. This is the first album that legitimately scared me uh, when I was a child. Uh, my neighbor had this album, and I saw it, and he put it on. And um, uh, I remember there's a there's a music uh, or a uh, uh, instrumental guitar song from uh, Mick Mars called "Children of the Beast," and he played this, and I thought, "We are going to hell. We are being made minions of the devil." As I sit here listening to this record that was produced by Electra, <laughs> you know? Um, but it, it kind of became this thing where, uh, you know, people started glomming onto uh, Satanism, uh, using it, you know, in a hokey Hollywood kind of way, but it would get you attention, right? And so Motley Crue did that and, and Ozzy Osbourne did that. Uh, the big thing that I remember about this era is, of course, Dungeons and Dragons. Now, I uh, played on my stream last week. If you didn't uh, see it, I played the Dungeons and Dragons video game. Uh, I was all into Dungeons and Dragons. They had these books that had, you know, uh, the monster manual would have demons and information about the demons. And people were like, oh, this is satanic. This is terrible. You know, children are going to start murdering each other. But you know, I saw a lot of people playing Dungeons and Dragons and I didn't see anybody murdering anybody. Um, but it, it did get this really bad name, you know. Uh, and so it, it didn't help that some of the manuals, like the Dungeon Master Guide, the cover is this giant red demon with a big sword. And he's holding this, uh, you know, person in, it, in his claws that is about to get probably chopped up or, or bitten here. Uh, while other there's other uh, fighters at his feet trying to fight him, but um, you know it it does 
when you look at it, you don't say, oh, that's a monster. You say, oh, that's a demon, you know. And so anything that they were associating with with demons or the devil or Satan at this time uh, was a hot topic. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, D&D, like, are, are these people really Satan worshipers? Like, is this, uh, you know, really satanic? Now, later, uh, we got, you know, I asked my parents, I was like, I don't know if I want to play this game, but I don't know about it. And so I've talked about this. I did a whole episode about Dungeons and Dragons, an early, early episode of You Don't Know Flat. Uh, but my parents bought the basic set and we actually sat down and played Dungeons and Dragons and they were like, nope, you can play it. It's not evil. It's about walking around and fighting orcs, <laughs> you know, and looking for gold. Uh, they were, they were not afraid of, uh, of me being lured to the dark side by playing Dungeons and Dragons, you know, uh, the clue for me that it wasn't, uh, related to Satanism was when it became a Saturday morning cartoon in 1983, the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon with all the, the teenagers that got uh, sucked into the alternate dimension of Dungeons and Dragons and, and they would go around and fight bad guys and they were constantly looking for a way home. Uh, I always feel like, and we'll talk about this again. This topic will come up again later. But, uh, I mean, I just don't think that Saturday morning cartoons is where Satanists are doing their recruiting, if they're doing recruiting at all. Um, now, the thing about all this Satanism uh, and the Satanic panic, anytime that parents are like, this is dangerous, this is, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't dabble in this, then immediately kids want to do that, you know, that <laughs> makes you curious. Uh, I remember that uh, I had just discovered Metallica and I went to the local music store and I got this Metallica poster and it says, kill them all, which is the first Metallica album. And then it has in the far background, you can see the uh, album cover of kill them all. But then in front of that is this giant red demon. I don't know who this red demon is supposed to be. Uh, it says Hell on Earth Tour, and then it has pictures of the band down there at the bottom. But the 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 presentation of the poster, there's a lot of fire. There's a lot of uh, – it's all red, white, and black. Like, it's very, um, you know, hellish, fiery colors. Um, but this was the marketing, right? This is – I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing on Metallica's album that was about devil worship. I mean, their first album, you know. Um, it, it was just, uh, I mean, there was a song about headbanging <laughs> called Whiplash. It was not about, you know, join the Satan army or whatever. I mean, there was just nothing there. But if you use that imagery, uh, it was powerful imagery. And so people would be attracted to it. The problem is, is that the adults also uh, looked at it, you know, and, and they would say, oh, well, um, you know, this looks like it could be satanic. And so it, it worked it worked in their uh, in their best interest by attracting kids, but it worked against them in making enemies <laughs> in the parents. Um, I remember going to a music store. I, went, I used to, um, I, I had a job, I had a motorcycle, and I would ride, when I was 14, I would ride to the local music store. And not only was the guy who owned the store always there, but also there were these uh, like bands, band members that would just hang out at the store. And I remember I would go in there and, and, you know, ask like, oh, is there any good tapes? Like, 
hey, I like this band. Can you recommend something? Or I would just pick out a band. And I remember these band members would be like, man, you don't want that. You want this, you know. And I remember one of the guys gave me a Slayer tape. He gave me Slayer Hell Awaits, which was uh, – uh, I don't remember if that was the first or second. I know there was Show No Mercy. And, um, but it was this this album cover of, like, people falling. It looks like falling into the pit of hell. There's fire. You've got Slayer with a pentagram behind. I mean, it's, it's over-the-top imagery, you know. Uh, I, I remember buying Slayer's um, uh, Rain and Blood cassette, which is uh, infamous. It's really the first uh, thrash metal album i believe but it's so the songs are so fast and so short that the entire album is on both sides of the cassette both sides contain however many all 10 songs however many there are um but i remember looking at the cassette pulling it out of this little of its container you know and um the front side is side six and the other side was side six six and you know, kids are in on the joke. Like, I thought that was funny. I was, I mean, I, I literally remember rolling my eyes and being like, oh my God, that's silly. Side six and side six, six. But, you know, a lot of adults didn't think it was funny. You know, they, they were like, well, look what they're trying. They're trying to sneak this message in, but they weren't sneaking it into the kids. The kids were in on it, you know. Um, I, one of the things that always confused me about all this was, why musicians were singled out over other forms of entertainment. You know, I remember people saying, oh, Alice Cooper, man, you can't listen to Alice Cooper because, you know, he's he's evil, he's satanic. Um, you know, later, I mean, we have Marilyn Manson, which was, you know, essentially Alice Cooper just recycled for another generation. And Marilyn Manson would stand up and he would have 666 on his podium and he would say, you know, I'm this evil guy, whatever, whatever. But it was an act. You know, it was all an act designed to to sell records and sell concert tickets. And I never understood why Stephen King could write a horror book and people didn't go after Stephen King. I mean, I, I know there's some subset of, of people that went after Stephen King. But, you know, he wasn't labeled a Satanist. He was just a guy who wrote horror books. Um, or think about somebody like Clive Barker, you know, <clears throat> who um, wrote all these really twisted uh, horror books. And then, uh, you know, things were made into, you know, look at Hellraiser, like the film. Uh, it, it's all about these uh, the Cenobites, these demons that that love uh, torturing people they get pleasure from pain and all this um but clive barker is not you know people don't chant against him or what i don't know they don't boycott his house but they do these musicians you know so that was always a weird distinction that i never fully understood was why musicians were really singled out whereas the other ones were just um uh, people that were creating entertainment which ultimately is what the musicians uh were doing as well um, now, um, I remember, well, before I, I talk about this, I want to talk, I wanted to mention, um, a couple of things about Motley Crue and Metallica. Um, Motley Crue, again, on the, uh, uh, Shout at the Devil album, uh, you know, they had this big, uh, pentagram and, uh, I was trying to find the picture again here. Um, they had this big pentagram and it was Shout at the Devil and it was pictures of them in front of fire, you know, but their next album was Home Sweet Home. 
Uh, no, their next album was Theater of Pain, which had the song uh, Home Sweet Home and had Smoking in the Boys Room and all these songs uh, that were big hits on the radio. And I always, you know, <clears throat> it, it's an interesting thing where where they were satanic for two years and then they went on to other stuff. It was just an image, you know. Um, and then when they moved away from it, all that all that stuff went away. Um you know, um, Tom Mariah, who is the lead singer of uh, Slayer and who came up with uh, a lot of the band's lyrics, uh, he is a Roman Catholic. He's big in his church, you know, and, and he did all these interviews and he's like, yeah, this is just not, you know, we do music. We write about serial killers. We write about, uh, you know, scary things, but that's not who we are. We're not eating babies. We're not doing all these things. We go home. We're normal people, you know. Um, so. It, it was easy, easier for, I think, kids than adults to see through the facade and see that, that this stuff wasn't real. Uh, the other thing is Metallica. Again, you know, going back to that, that uh, poster, <clears throat> goodness, excuse me, um, the Kill Em All poster, you know, with this big demon and stuff like that. Uh, I remember reading this article and saying, like, they have terrible songs like, uh, creeping death. Creeping death is a story literally from the Bible. <laughs> I mean, it's all about, um, well, it's about creeping death, you know, when they, um, uh, you know, taking the uh, uh, firstborn Pharaoh's son. I, like the whole story, uh, I mean, it's right from the Bible. You know, uh, James Hetfield, the the lead singer and lead, and I guess, well, not lead guitarist, but guitarist from Metallica, um, was, was raised in a very Christian home. And so a lot of their stuff has that background, you know, uh, master of puppets has this image of, uh, all these, these crosses in a graveyard and there's strings above it. And people saw that and were like, Oh, this is, you know, the devil pulling these people's strings. It was about drug addiction, you know? So people, saw into a lot of the stuff what they wanted to see. And I always like to point out that now, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, which is uh, one of Metallica's bigger songs, is played on the NFL right before they do a kickoff. I've seen this on Monday Night Football where they play Metallica and then they do a kickoff. And I think, boy, have times changed. You know, there was a time when when uh, parents would, you know, give you the side eye. Oh, he listens to Metallica. You know, he's, he's one of those kids. Now it's a little bit more acceptable. And um, uh, I don't know. It time Times change. That's all I can say. So one of my uh, memories from uh, this era growing up in the, in the 90s was this uh, issue of People magazine. And this issue came out, I think it was 1984, and it says, has rock gone too far on the front of the magazine? And, and there's pictures of uh, Madonna and David Lee Roth and Prince. And, and Madonna is wearing this shirt that's open. You can see her, the, her bra and Prince uh, looks like Prince. <laughs> His shirt's halfway off and he's smiling and dancing. And uh, this is like the beginnings of the PMRC, you know, um, talking about the all the, the terrible things that are in rock music. Uh, and this article had a big impact on me. Uh, again, I had this physical magazine. I still have it somewhere. It was a, um, uh, uh, it was influent. It influenced me, I would say, but there was a second part that was linked to this. And this was the issue of people that came out after the night stalker had been arrested. Richard Ramirez. A lot of people know from these Netflix specials and, and, uh, it turns out, 
during pandemics, people like to watch a lot of true crime. <laughs> there's a true crime. There's about 22 true crime shows on right now on my cable. Um, but Richard Ramirez was known as the Night Stalker. And one of the things about Richard Ramirez was that he wore an ACDC baseball hat. And his name, the Night Stalker, came from, or the Night Prowler, uh, he, he said, you know, he listened to this song from ACDC, which was about slipping into people's rooms and stuff. And he said he took inspiration. And I think at least at some of the sites, he wrote ACDC on the wall in spray paint. Now, ACDC is, I mean, they had a few, I guess they had Highway to Hell and they had Hell's Bells. Uh, but, I mean, they weren't a satanic band. They weren't, you know, particularly... I mean, on the scale of things, they were really not <laughs> not that evil at all. It was much more about, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll than it was about the devil, you know, with ACDC. But um, I would say as a kid, this article scared me, you know, because as a, you're pretty influential, uh, as a, or not influential, but easily influenced as a child. And thinking about, boy, these guys listen to ACDC – it made me scared of ACDC. I thought, it, well, he listened to that, and then he turned into a serial killer. Where, um, you know, there, there's always that um, uh, causal relation. I don't know if that's the right way to say that, but you know, people say things like, "Well, these these kids listen to heavy metal, and then they went and, and shot up a school." Well, did they shoot up a school because they listened to heavy metal, or did they listen to heavy metal and then go shoot up the school, or were they going to shoot up the school and just happen? I don't know. I like talking about school shootings, but you get the idea. Like, like, there's probably like there's a lot of people over the years that have listened to ACDC, and there's one Night Stalker. <laughs> so, uh, it it the odds are in your favor. It's probably okay to listen to uh, ACDC. You probably will not become a serial killer. Um, <clears throat> now, all of this stuff about the satanic panic uh, really led to. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm going to defer talking about uh, uh, all the messages that we got. But, you know, parents and stuff were saying, like, you know, if you see this stuff, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't learn about it. You shouldn't read about it, which immediately made me want to go learn about it and read about it, you know. And I remember going to a garage sale one time, and I found this book. Um, there were two books, and I think they were, like, 10 cents each. They were paperbacks. And one was, I think it was Zarath. Thursta maybe or Zoroast. I don't remember which one it was, but it was like a book of spells. And I was like, book of spells. Um, and I bought that and I bought um, this book about pyramid power, which was really interesting. And it said things like pyramids by design, by their shape have um, magical powers. And it said, if you want to prove it to yourself, um, get two pieces of fruit and build a pyramid for one and put the fruit in there and leave the other fruit out and uh, positive energy and, and um, you know, whatever will be funneled into the pyramid and that piece of fruit will not rot at the same rate as the other piece of fruit. And I literally got some balsa wood that we had out in the garage, these like dowel balsa dowels or something. And I taped this thing together and I made this pyramid and I got two bananas. And let me tell you, they rotted at exactly the same rate. <laughs> My pyramid I built was not very magical. Uh, it did nothing. And uh, the only spell 
I was able to conjure up was fruit flies in my room for about a week after I had rotten bananas in it from uh, trying this little pyramid experiment. Didn't work for me, so I don't know what to say. But um, uh, I do remember two books that I got, uh, and the first one was the Necronomicon. Now, uh, if you're not into horror and and knowing um, about H.P. Lovecraft and and, uh, Cthulhu and all those kind of things, uh, H.P. Lovecraft wrote a ton of horror books about these ancient ones, about these monsters that existed like before the beginning of the universe. They were always these gigantic, huge monsters. There's been a lot of movies made about different uh, things like this. And um, in a lot of his books, he referred to this book called the Necronomicon, which was supposedly this ancient tomb of uh, stories and spells and historical information stuff. But the thing was, it wasn't a real book. He just referred to it, and in several of his works, he referred to it as some sort of book that existed, but it did not exist. Well, Somebody, well, over the years, there were a lot of uh, pranks. I read that people would, you know, at used bookstores. I, I read at Yale, somebody went and put uh, Necronomicon in the card catalog. I mean, these were all just pranks and jokes, right? Well, somebody actually wrote a book called the Necronomicon and said, hey, this is the actual Necronomicon. It's been translated or whatever. Um, and uh, it went to bookstores and you could buy it. And I went and bought a copy. And I remember reading this thing and it had all these spells and stuff. Now I was not into, I mean, I guess I should say this, but I was not uh, satanic. I was not into Satanism. I was into curiosity and just reading about stuff. So there were all these things that said, Hey, if you say this spell, you know, three times at night, you might find money tomorrow. I didn't read those spells. I didn't try any of the stuff in this book. I just thought it was interesting to read about, you know, and um, again, it had this whole history that it was written by the mad monk, I think, and translated and all this. And, and it, it's all hooey, you know, it's it's all just goofball stuff, but uh, it was interesting to read. Um, but then uh, I went over to a friend's house and he was like, well, if, if you've read that, you should see this. And he had a copy of the Satanic Bible. Now, the Satanic Bible that was written in the late 60s by Anton LaVey. It is pretty much, I guess you would say, um, well, it's their Bible, right, for Satanism. And I spent the night at this kid's house, and I read it. I think I read the entire thing in one night. Um, and it it is separate separated out into these four different things in there. And um I was expecting it to say, here's how we do blood sacrifices. And listen, if you want to kill a chicken, this is how you kill a chicken, all this sort of stuff. But it wasn't like that at all. Um, it was essentially that, um, you know, I think it was at the Aleister Crowley, the old quote, um, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. It was that idea. It was, uh, we don't go to church. We don't do what other people tell us. We do what's best for us. And I, I kept looking through this. I was like, well, where's the the Satan part? Where's the, like, where do they worship Satan? Where's the satanic altar? Where's the blood drinking? Uh, and it's just not in there, you know? And so this, first of all, uh, for me, and, and um, this goes on and on and on uh, throughout time, is that there's a difference between what 
practicing Satanists do, um, which is some of them wear, you know, black robes or whatever they get together. But most of all, it's just like they go, hey, we're just going to march to our own drum. And they're also big supporters of the First Amendment, uh, you know, by default. Uh, But then there's this Hollywood, the music and all this thing of what Satanism is, which is, you know, ah, we kill babies and we cut people up and all that, which was not really what was was happening. Um, Again, stay with me because we're going to talk about some stuff. Um, but, uh, I, I read through this. Now I will say this, um, I was going to say just to play devil's advocate, which is a, uh, ironic statement. Uh, I have read the entire Bible. Uh, I went to, I got my bachelor's degree from Southern Nazarene university. We took a Bible studies class and, uh, throughout this one course, we had to take tests on every book in the Bible. So I've read the entire Bible, uh, as well, you know, and, and they're both interesting and they both, uh, I don't, I don't want to go as far as to say that there's something you could take away from the Satanic Bible because that puts me in a, a, a strange, uh, strange bedfellows. But um, I, it was interesting, you know. And again, as a kid, I was 13, 14, and, and curious to find out what all the the hubbub was about. And um, I just didn't, I didn't find it there, you know. Uh, now, what I wanted to say as I as I circle back around is that uh, just because something isn't real doesn't mean it's not powerful. And so what I mean by that is uh, I rem- there was a kid in my neighborhood who uh, was the one, he was the kind of weird loner kid that was kind of scary. You know, there were, there were loner kids that were nerds or, or whatever, but this was like the kind of creepy loner kid, you know? And there was a story that he had, both uh, extinguished a cigarette on a Bible and that he had ripped pages out of a Bible and thrown them in the creek. Now, I don't know if either of those things are true. I, I, I never saw any of that happen. But just by saying that, I was afraid of this kid, you know? And so uh, it, it's this idea of that you have associated with an idea um, that says something about you, whether or not what's behind that idea is is real or not. Uh, I remember this this kid in high school that would draw pentagrams on everything that he could get his hands on on his on his pants and on his his textbooks and on his locker, and you know, to the point where it was almost silly. Um, but again, it, it's that idea where you are telling the world for one reason or another, this is what I believe in, this is what I associate with, and so it's a symbol, you know, of of where your belief system is. Uh, there was a very famous murder case uh, involving a young man named Ricky Casso, who um, uh, now, if you read the headlines, say he had a, a he murdered a guy, he murdered one of his friends in a satanic sacrifice. Um, the reality, if you read a little bit further down in the story, was also they were doing um, mescaline and that his buddy had stolen a bunch of his PCP. So there were <laughs> there were already bad things going on here, right? But uh, this is a pretty brutal murder. And if you've ever, there's a documentary uh, about Ricky Castle. There was actually a, um, I don't know if it was a made-for-TV movie or a movie 
that was never, re I mean, it's on VHS. You can find it bootleg circles, but it was never, never made it to DVD or anything uh, called Say You Love Satan. And the reason it's called that is because that's what Ricky Casso was yelling. Here's your trigger warning as he was stabbing and pulling the eyeballs out of this teenager that he murdered. Uh, again, I got a feeling that doing mescaline and PCB will make you, uh, I said PCB, I think, <laughs> which is different, but PCP, uh, they'll make you do bad things. You'll make bad decisions. <laughs> Don't hang out with a guy that does mescaline and PCP and has a knife <laughs> and likes satanic music. You, you know, bad things could happen. Uh, so again, whether or not all that other stuff was true, right? Like, I don't think all those kids were abused at that daycare. I don't believe uh, Michelle remembers in her memoir and all those things. But that being said, if somebody does believe that and then they act uh, based on that, there are lots and lots of documented cases of kids killing other kids and then blaming it on Satan or saying, you know, boy, I was, I was sure listening to a lot of heavy metal music and the devil made me do it. So uh, even if the occult stuff isn't real. Uh, the actions that people take in the name of that stuff is real. And so there, there's a, a line in the sand there that's a little bit difficult to, uh, to define. Um, there were a couple other things that, that during the satanic panic, I remember uh, one was uh, Ouija boards. And, uh, you know, a Ouija board originally, you know, were these, ancient boards, uh, you know, that, that had these symbols on it and a planchette that people put their hands on and they can move the planchette around and, and talk to demons or spirits of the other world or whatever. Um, I think it was probably uh, born into pop culture through The Exorcist uh, was the first place that a lot of people were exposed to uh, Ouija boards. Um, I got mine from Walmart. Uh, mine is a Parker Brothers brand, and uh, I'm telling you, nobody tried to talk to spirits harder than I did. I'd sit in my room, and I'd sit there, and I'd be like, all right, come on, spirits, tell me to move this thing one centimeter, and boy, did it never, ever move. Now, I did loan that Ouija board to someone who loaned it to someone else who had many stories about all the... Uh, uh, spirits they talked to. So maybe the spirits uh, just didn't want to visit my town in Oklahoma. But um, yeah, I never got it to do anything. But it was certainly a very taboo thing to own, even though, again, I didn't have mine made by, a, you know, mine did not have the lineage. It didn't come from a, a witch from Salem. Uh, mine came off, mine was next to, it was between shoots and ladders and operation. <laughs> on the shelf at Walmart. Um, there was another uh, controversy I remember at the time, which I thought was completely ridiculous, uh, was this skater uh, whose name was uh, Natus Kalpas. Uh, he was of Lithuanian descent, and Natus is a Lithuanian name. There's a, uh, there's a female version, which is like Natilius or something. So it's like Natalie and Nate, that it's the Lithuanian versions of those names. Uh, but he became a uh, professional skateboarder. He was part of the Dogtown group. He skated for Santa Cruz. Uh, he was in uh, Wheels of Fire and Streets of Fire, which was two very popular skate videos at the time. And he had these uh, skateboards with his name on it that said Natus, N-A-T-A-S, which someone immediately said, well, that spells Satan backwards. 
Well, first of all, I just don't feel like I feel like uh, the, if the devil's trying to get his message out, he's going to be sneakier than that. Like I think most people <laughs> would see five letters and go, "Hey, does that say Satan backwards?" You know. But uh, uh, it, like schools banned. There were many schools who banned. Uh, Natus had his own um, line of shoes, and you couldn't wear Natus shoes, and you couldn't have his skateboard, and it was, uh, you know, just this part of uh, this overreaction. You know what I mean? Where parents see that and they're like, oh, you know, can't have that. You know, I, I remember talking to my parents about Natus Calpus. I didn't have a Natus board, but asking them what they thought and, and they just laughed, you know. And there was a lot of stuff like that about asking about the music because um, it seemed like all the music that was being uh, accused of Satanism was either uh, not satanic, like Metallica, not satanic, Motley Crue, not satanic, or they were people being overly satanic, like uh, Merciful Fate, King Diamond, who would paint his face up and his, his microphone stand as an upside-down cross, and he was like, I am satanic, and I'm going to be singing about the devil. It was like so over-the-top theatrical, you know, or Venom, uh, some of those old bands that get kind of looped into that where they were, uh, you know, I mean... It, they weren't hiding it. They were just saying, listen, we're the devil. And then people would listen to it or not. I, I didn't really got in any of that stuff. But um, I'll tell you who's bad news. If you're a kid in the 1980s and you like rock music and skateboarding and all this stuff, it's Geraldo Rivera. And Geraldo Rivera had this special in the late 80s, uh, and it was – uh, called Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground. Of course, this is the same guy that opened Al Capone's vault and, you know, had the infamous, uh, he had the KKK on and they started a big ruckus and a fight. Uh, so so he was, Geraldo was all about ratings. And, he, you know, he wasn't about, now in, in the early days, and if you do research, uh, I don't have this written down, but Geraldo was an investigative reporter that broke some pretty big stories. I know he broke a story about um, a, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a mental institution or what it was, some sort of institution where uh, that had terrible, the, the way that people were being uh, kept there was under terrible conditions. And he broke that story. There's a lot of things like that. So he started off as an investigative reporter, but he got to a point, you know, when he put him on TV and he just kind of became this sensational uh journalist that was doing things for ratings, you know. Um, and you watch this special and he interviews these kids and they're like, yep, I killed for Satan. <laughs> and, you know, all these parents, I mean, parents, the thing about parents and, and as a parent, I could, I could say this from the heart, is that all you want is that your kids to be safe. You want your kids to grow up and be good, decent people and uh, not, you know, pluck people's eyeballs out. You don't want your kids to do that. You want your kids to be good people, you know? And so, um, you know, Geraldo's special is on prime time and all these parents are watching it and they're like, oh boy, you know? And then they come to their kids and they're like, hey, are you listening to the devil? And you're like, no, not me. I don't listen to that devil music. And then you just would hope that they wouldn't go through your cassette tapes <laughs> and see what you were listening to. Um, but what this did specifically, and this was a kind of a, I mean, it was not just Geraldo. It was all these things. And it was a lot um, uh, with the church at that time was uh, there was this push for people to start reaching out to kids 
and and seeing what they're doing. And I'm not talking about people's parents, but other people uh, getting, I don't want to say getting into your business because that's a loaded way to say it. But um, one of the ones I remember was this lady named Betty. And Betty worked at Pizza Hut when I worked there and several of my friends worked there. And Betty was at least 30 years older than us. And let me tell you, um, while we're talking about hell, I do not want to be 50 working with teenagers at Pizza Hut. I mean, she must have been miserable. <laughs> and we were awful teenagers. I mean, we would say terrible things to her, not mean things to her, but I mean, the way we talked as kids and the, the stuff that we said, I mean, she was worried for us, you know? And so she brought this book uh, and and let people read it at work. And I have it right here because after other people read it, she gave it to me and said, you should probably read this book. <laughs> and it is uh, Gary, Lar or no, it's not Gary Larson, uh, Bob Larson, who is a, uh, a evangelist guy that was on TV. And his big thing was uh, rock music is ruining children. And so this is Bob Larson's book of rock. Uh, which Mary gave me and said, you should read this. Um, and, and so it's all about, it's testimonials about how people's lives were ruined by listening to rock music. And of course, there's alternatives like, boy, if you're listening to that Motley Crue, you should probably be listening to Striper, you know, <laughs> and different things like that. Um, and and about um, how Satan and music drove people to murder. And there's stuff about um, uh, backmasking, which I also did a show about. Um, but here's the here's what makes these books, and there's multiple books like this, uh, difficult to swallow is, you know, there will be a thing in here. I'm looking here like, um, like it says, the Beach Boys. Here's an article about the Beach Boys, and it talks about um, – how, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't remember if it was Brian Wilson. Now I'm just getting here to look. Yeah, Brian Wilson, uh, how he had done drugs and then how Dennis Wilson had a relationship with Charles Manson, which is true. I mean, they weren't really friends, but they, uh, um, you know, had crossed paths and done some stuff. So, um, so, and here's a big article right here about, um, uh, the Bee Gees, and it talks about, um, you know, they they wrap their message in, in candy coating and all this, but it says, um, I'm quoting here from the book, uh, though their public image exuded wholesomeness, interviews on their private lives revealed they were less than paragons of virtue. Robin confessed to a hobby of pornographic drawings. Barry insisted that the 1979 album Spirits Having Flown is infiltrated with references to reincarnation, while Maurice and Robin claimed to have psychic ESP powers. I did not know that two of the Bee Gees said that they had ESP, but that's kind of interesting. Uh, so, I mean, to me, the, the problem with these books is that, uh, you know, if you were to say, hey, King Diamond is a guy that sings about the devil. I would go, I'm, I'm with you. I agree with that. I, I believe he does. But then they go on to say, you know, and like, here's a little thing about Alice Cooper. You know, you got it. You got to hit Alice Cooper. It's a low hanging fruit, right? But right after Alice Cooper is Culture Club. And then there's a thing about Def Leppard that says, 
Entitled Pyromania, this album jacket features a burning skyscraper with a gun sight centered over the most intense portion of the flame. If you think an album portraying arson isn't humorous, neither are Def Leppard's other antics. And then it goes on to talk about Def Leppard. So, um, so they, they just throw everybody in to one thing. I'm just looking through some of the artists that they talk about. Uh, Elton John, Jefferson Airplane, Kiss. Uh, this is one of my favorite. Uh, well, you know what? I think it's in the the other book I'm going to show too. But um, it talks about uh, you know obviously, obviously when there's a guy known as the demon that spits blood in his concerts, he's going to show up in a book like this. Um, there was another book that uh, I picked up somewhere along the way, and uh, this book is called uh, The Rock Report by the Fletcher. Now, I always used to say it was the Fletcher Brothers, but the guy's name is Fletcher Brothers, Fletcher A. Brothers. Um, and it's really what it is, is it's just a big paperback um, book. And uh, it, it's like a picture book. Like there's just constant pictures of all these different bands and band members and then articles. Uh, I mean, like a little one page or one paragraph things about why you shouldn't let your children listen to them. And there's this section about Kiss, which, by the way, I mean, Kiss is like, I mean, they're not even that hard to rock. I mean, I like Kiss, you know, but um, if you're looking for bad music, like, you could get pretty far away from Kiss, you know. Um, so it starts off saying that, um, that Kiss stands for um, Kids in Satan's Service, which, you know, is dopey. Um, but it goes down here, but then there's this quote that they've pulled, um, uh, out of some interview that Gene, Gene Simmons says, and it says, um, uh, let's see here. Let me find it real quick. Um, according to some who are acquainted with cannibalism, uh, many of, uh, some of their stage antics are part of occult worship associated with demonism, tribal nations, and Satanism. Even here in America, Gene Simmons goes through antics on stage that are closely associated with cannibalistic practices. He once said this, quote, I've always wondered what human flesh tastes like, and I've always wanted to be a cannibal. <laughs> I mean, if you've seen any interview with Gene Simmons, he is, you know, this old Jewish guy. There is no way that Gene Simmons has always wanted to be a cannibal, you know, but that's that's the thing is that you know number one these bands know if you do an interview and you go well i always wanted to be a cannibal that somebody that's going to be on the news and gene simmons uh if if nothing else knows how to make headlines gene simmons is in the music uh on the the websites that i read he's on the headlines every day and they're not touring and he's not releasing music but people still um want to hear what he has to say so anyway uh i got a kick entertainment wise out of these books um and and i want to i'm gonna circle around for a second i'm not making fun of betty uh i'm not uh you know saying what she did was bad um and, and let me tell you one other story and then, and then i'll i'll loop these together uh my junior year I took uh, sociology uh, in my high school. You took sociology your junior year and psychology your senior year. And it was taught by a, a football coach, Coach Pierce. And Coach Pierce was uh, at some point, I, I mean, I know that he was a, a, a church-going guy and was, 
I don't want to say afraid for, but he was concerned about what he saw in us as his students. Now, again, we were juniors. I was 16 my junior year. So, um, you know, I don't, I'm sure I was wearing Slayer t-shirts. I had a Slayer t-shirt I used to wear. Uh, the kid that sat in front of me had a big mohawk and had an exploited leather jacket. And there were, you know, several other kids in there that were into heavy metal. Uh, and, and, um, I mean, there was one guy, you know, it's just this group of kids, right? And so um, Coach Pierce took a week off of class and brought these videos. Now, there is a video called Hell's Bells, which is infamous. This was a uh, a video that was uh, distributed through churches, and you could purchase this and show it to other people, and it talked about all the dangers in rock and roll. Sometimes they showed it in church, and then they had it for sale so that you could buy this and, and – um, uh, and spread the message, you know. Now, this was not the video that we saw. We did not watch Hell's Bells. We watched something else. And for the life of me, I can't find it and I can't remember the name. All I remember is that uh, it must have been something that was made for television because there were these cuts to commercials. And then I don't remember that they're being commercials. But the cuts going to commercials had a clip of Jane's Addiction and something from Slayer. And that is my biggest memory. And, of course, these these things went through all the, the terrible things that were in music and, and the horrible bands. Uh, but this whole video really backfired for Coach Pierce because I know that when we started watching this, I had never heard of Jane's Addiction. But I wrote that name down. And as the video went on, I was taking notes and writing down all the different bands that I hadn't heard of. I had heard of of Slayer by then, but, you know, there were all these different metal bands that I had never heard of. And so I was like making a shopping list, you know. (laughs) I mean, when this was over, we would all go to the music store and be like, oh, yeah, I hadn't heard of this Venom. Let's get that, you know. Uh, so I really, th- you know, looking back, and I'm I'm grouping these stories together with Coach Pierce and Betty from Pizza Hut, uh, you know, especially as an adult now, I don't fault them in the slightest. They were concerned about what they were seeing and the children that were around them, and they were trying to, in the way that they knew how, um, you know, educate people about this stuff. But again. There's this disconnect because these parents are so afraid that kids listening to heavy metal and doing all this were going to become active Satanists or whatever. When all of us kids, like I didn't have time to be a Satanist. I was working at Pizza Hut. (laughs) When am I going to have time to be a Satanist? I was going to school and then working at Pizza Hut and, you know, making money and wanting to, you know, buy a new skateboard. But like none of us. I don't know a single person in my life that I have ever met who identified as being uh, satanic or a Satanist. Not one. Not a single person. Uh, and so that was this disconnect is that they were all trying to save us from something that just wasn't happening. Um, and then, but, you know, where the where the problem lied was that They were trying, you know, if they were like, listen, guys, we don't want you to worship the devil. We would all go, yeah, we're not doing that. That's, that's, (laughs) nobody here is worshiping the devil. But what they tried to do was say, you shouldn't be listening to this music. And we all liked heavy music. And so that, 
became the battle when it should that should have never been the battle. Um, but it was this this combination of well-meaning people and then um, big business. You know, that Hell's Bells video, they didn't give it away for free. They would show it to a church and then they would sell copies. So they were in business. So they wanted to make this as, you know, controversial as possible because, you know, if you put enough fear in people, then they're going to buy that product and then share that video with other people. So I, I think I would see it differently if they were giving it away for free. If they were saying, here's some free material you could show people, uh, then I would I wouldn't question the motives behind it. But the fact that they were selling it uh, to those people like scare you and then sell it to you, that's that's the part that makes me question uh, uh, the motives of that. Now I do remember um, this uh, one time. Oh, I've got a picture uh, right now on the screen of Hell's Bells. Again, this is the video. This is the most famous video. Uh, that was distributed at that time. And it says the dangers of rock and roll. And of course, again, you know, it just, you can find it on YouTube, I believe. Uh, you can watch it and you can find out just how dangerous uh, Elton John is. Um, there was a, a girl that I went to uh, high school with who I was always good friends with. And she and I were had been friends for a long time. Uh, we had all these classes together. We had common interests. And um, our senior year, she went away to a church camp and she came home uh, and, and she was gone for a week and this church camp changed her. And she came back with all these stories about how Satanism had infiltrated everything and that that um, you had to just be watching for Satan everywhere. And the two things I remember, well, there are three things I remember. One uh, was she made a big deal about the Smurfs. And talked about how Gargamel's castle in the cartoon is set up like a pentagram, and that the uh, layout of the Smurfs uh, is is there's some com or some correlation between how a coven is set up because there's one Papa Smurf and 99 followers, and and um, that that Smurfette it was you know Smurfette was a creation, and how all these things were just unholy, and so she was never gonna watch. Uh, or talk about the Smurfs again. Well, that's not true. She talked about the Smurfs anytime she saw anybody with the Smurfs. She would tell them how evil they were. Um, there was a. She also went on to a big thing, explained to me how the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were, um, you know, really this these agents of Satan <laughs> uh, because they were mutants, right? And and by the way, when I, I you know I make a little laugh or something thinking about it. Um, but, um, but she was, she was deadly serious, you know, uh, and that they were based on ninjas who were assassins. And I was like, yeah, who didn't know that? Like I, you know, by that time had Ninja three domination on, on VHS and revenge of the ninja on VHS. So yeah, I was pretty familiar with ninjas, you know? Um, but then her other thing was about how they had learned all about unicorns and how unicorns were this, uh, evil, it was it had something to do with because they weren't on uh, the ark in the Bible that unicorns were not natural, and that in real life, if you had a a toy unicorn or a crystal unicorn or something, that um, that horn could be a passageway for evil spirits uh, or demons to come into this world. And I was like, like 
if you buy a stuffed animal, like it's just fabric that's sewn in this thing, a devil could come through that? She was like, yes. And she said, I have all these uh, unicorn statues that I've collected and, and snow globes and all this. And I went and smashed them all. And I, I'm choosing my words very carefully here. That was a point of view that I could not relate to and could not understand. Um, you know, I don't, and this is opinion, I don't think the Smurfs uh, agenda was to turn children into Satanists. I don't believe that. I don't believe that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had some alternative agenda to push uh, uh, the, you know, the creed of, of ancient uh, Japanese assassins on children. I just don't believe those things. Um, now, there is an argument, and I have this later in the notes, but it kind of fits here, uh, that, you know, you that in general, in life, it's a good idea to surround yourself with positive things. And so, by you know, if you surround yourself with negative things and negativity, and uh, then that, you know, that kind of bleeds into you. And, and the opposite is also true. If you surround yourself with, you know, they say don't, don't go to a party where you're the smartest guy and go to a party where you're the dumbest guy and you're surrounding yourself by smart people, that sort of thing. Um, so, um, you know, if you think that these things are, are really doing that, then I understand the viewpoint of not wanting to uh, submerge yourself in them. If you, you know, if you, if you don't want to hear band sing about the devil don't listen to that music i don't have a problem with that you know um it was just the part where there was that like i said there was that disconnect where people were like you know you shouldn't listen to anthrax and i was like well i don't think i'm going to <laughs> um <clears throat> but i i can tell you that uh, my relationship with this girl changed uh ever since that that moment you know where uh, i just thought this is someone who has a a world viewpoint that I don't understand. You know, I just don't think that uh, toys uh, can, you know, be this this um, uh, open a portal to let devils and demons in. You know, a toy that's shaped like a unicorn. Like, what happens if you break the horn off the toy? Then can it come through, or is it only if it's that shape? I don't know. I, I mean, I'm trying not to make light of it, but. <clears throat> um, but I just knew that that uh, we the two of us did not see the world in in the same way, you know. And this is again, you know, when I talked in the beginning, if uh, if this is your viewpoint, I am not making fun of you. I'm just saying it's not the viewpoint that I share. Uh, I don't. I just don't think that of all the problems we have in the world, I don't think to toy unicorns is is on the list for me. Um, <laughs> we'll get over that. Uh, you know, as it got into high school, there was more, uh, I mean, we discovered more evil music, you know, and I put a couple on the list here. One was of course, Danzig. Um, and Danzig was, uh, Glenn Danzig, if you're not familiar with him or his work, he was originally the uh, lead singer of the Misfits. And then he had, um, uh, Sam Hain before he formed his own band Danzig and his videos were dark and he came out with a home video where he talked all about, um, you know, all the occult and all these books and stuff. And so this was a guy, um, I know there had been others before, but this was the first guy in high school. I remember going like, this guy identifies as something evil. Now, you know, over the years, is he, is he 
does he really identify that way? I don't know. You know, you get these these memes of, of Glenn Danzig walking around with kitty litter from leaving the store, and it's hard to imagine that that's the same guy that would uh, – um, I'm not saying he's a nice guy. I don't think he's a particularly nice guy. I think um, he's got attitude issues. But uh, is he a Satanist? I don't know. I, I But I'll tell you this. He knows how to market it. Uh, you know, he knows how to make – uh, creepy comics and movies and songs and things like that. So, uh, but Danzig was one. And then um, there was a, a band called My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, which is a really interesting story uh, that these uh, college kids were going to make a a fake documentary about being members of these of a cult called the Thrill Kill Cult. And they ended up making a soundtrack uh, to go with this movie, and then they never made the movie. And that's kind of that was the formation of the band. Uh, and they had this this uh, dance single called "Cooler Than Jesus," uh, which is, I mean, it's it's blasphemy for uh, the sake of art, right? Um, but it was interesting because most of the uh, quote unquote satanic music that uh, we had been. Uh, exposed to was heavy metal. It was death metal. It was these guys that were, you know, spitting blood and on the stage with red lights and painted faces and stuff like that. And um, my life with the Thrill Kill Cold is dance music, you know. And so I always thought that was very interesting. Um, they they were taking, you know, a a uh, a marketing idea that that obviously worked. It worked for dancing. It worked for a lot of these bands. Um, but then applying it to a different genre. Now, there was uh, one guy in the band who became disenfranchised um, because uh, he said that the Thrill Kill cult members weren't really satanic, and he was really upset by this. And so uh, it's uh, Thomas Thorne, and so Thomas Thorne went on to form his band called the Electric Hellfire Club. And he said, hey, I'm the real deal. I'm really evil. I'm really satanic. Now, I, I believe that he is. I mean, I believe that he openly identifies as as being a, a member of the Church of Satan and and all this stuff. And, um, you know, he has this, this album called uh, Satan's Little Helpers. And if you look at the... Uh, the cover, it's all these drawings and, and you can see in the, like there's Charles Manson and there's, uh, you know, uh, the uh, Night Stalker and, and uh, Ricky Casso is in there. So there's uh, there's Anton LaVey. Uh, so, you know, it's obviously um, marketing towards that, right? The thing is, is that he, there's so many, uh, this band has recorded a lot of tongue-in-cheek songs like they did um, you know, covers of Shout at the Devil. They did a cover of The Devil Inside by NXS. And so they've they've kind of turned these songs and they're playing on the, the devil aspect. So um, how evil they are or aren't, I, that's not really for me to say. Um, but uh, again, I always wonder, uh, you know, how evil something is when you can get it at Walmart. So... Uh, actually, I don't know if you could get Electric Hellfire at Walmart. I know you could get it at Blockbuster, uh, or not Blockbuster, um, Sound Warehouse, and uh, oh, a couple of those places, because that's where I got mine, you know. Uh, so I guess um, where a lot of this came to a head for me and for a lot of people 
was the case of the West Memphis Three. I'm not going to go into all the details of this case. There are uh, there's documentaries. There's a documentary called Paradise Lost. Uh, there are podcasts that are dedicated to it. If you Google. Uh, you know, the story of the West Memphis Three, there are hundreds and hundreds of people that have already told this story. Uh, but essentially, uh, three small children were murdered and the police uh, in this town in West Memphis and uh, the the police were under pressure to solve these murders. And so they went and rounded up three kids uh, two of them had uh, uh, long hair. One, you know, one kid had long hair. One kid had a mullet. <laughs> one kid had a basically a shaved head. And these were the three known uh, troublemakers that all dressed. Uh, they, you know, they quoted and they said they dressed like goth kids. Um, they all had uh, black t-shirts on and and uh, were fan- listened to Metallica. And um, they said those those are the guys. And there was no evidence at all. And so. Um, uh, one of the three kids uh, had a uh, IQ, I want to say like around 70 or something, or maybe lower. Like, like um, uh, we, we would definitely today not interrogate somebody like this uh, without representation. Um, think like Forrest Gump level uh, intelligence. And basically put him in a room for eight hours until he confessed and said, yep, we did it. And my friends did it. And so based on that, they convicted or they they. Uh, yeah, well, they did eventually. Uh, they put these kids on trial. They convicted them. There was no evidence. There was nothing relating them. Uh, it was just the police wanted to wrap this case up. These kids were in jail. They were in prison from 1993 until 2011. Uh, until eventually, uh, you know, evidence basically came out. There were the retrial, and this evidence said essentially. Uh, there's no evidence and other people there. There's another guy that we saw. They they saw another guy the day of the murder that was in a, a, a fast food restroom covered in blood that was washed up in the bathroom and the police never followed up on that. So, uh, but there was just no proof to link these kids to this murder, but they just fit that MO. And, and that was to me, one of the scariest things about the satanic panic of the eighties was, um, you know, not the, the satanic aspect of it, but the fact that you could be identified as associating with this and be thrown into a group. And that I found very scary. Uh, probably the scariest part of, uh, of, uh, the satanic panic, uh, of the 1980s for me. So, what happened to the satanic panic? How did all this end? Um, and I think a lot of it ended. I mean, the West Memphis three brought attention to this whole idea of uh, the satanic panic. You know, uh, I think a lot of people became skeptical after you know a decade of hearing all these things, like all these satanic cults and orgies and murders and sacrifices and yet there it never seemed to show up you know every now and then kids would go you know write 666 on a building with spray paint or put a, a pentagram on a tree but other than that there's just not a lot of hard evidence that any of this stuff was happening you know there was no none of these kids were listening to heavy metal and then and joining cults it just wasn't uh wasn't happening you know um now 
I'm going to tread on this topic lightly, but there are, if you look online, a lot of comparisons between the satanic panic of the 1980s and what has happened over the past 10 years with QAnon. Um, so Q and QAnon, which started off as this online thing, uh, basically recycled a lot of stuff about uh, the satanic panic, you know, and they, they basically said, well, there's this big group in Washington, D.C., and they are, um, you know, abusing kids in the name of Satan. They're eating children. Um, and if you look at Pizzagate, you know, that this was all supposedly happening at this pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C., there was a guy who showed up at this restaurant with a machine gun or a, 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 a assault rifle, let's say, or just a rifle, we could say, uh, but with loaded weapons and was like, I, dem you know, demand to see this area. I, I know this story is true. I know there's a, a basement, you know, and, they, and the guy went in his basement, you know, and it's like a storage little thing with pizza stuff. I mean, there's nothing in there, you know. Um, and, and so, but there, there was this, um, um, almost like the old witch trials of, you know, people just being accused. And if you're associated with this group, uh, it was bad news, you know, and that was, and that is, has been compared to uh, the satanic band. But, uh, by and large, the satanic panic, you know, by the early 90s kind of fizzled out. People uh, had been afraid all this time, and they got tired of being afraid of something that never materialized. You know, if your best source is, uh, you know, a couple of paperbacks and a Geraldo special, <laughs> there just wasn't wasn't much to it. You know, people moved on to other stuff. So, um, I think looking back, like the takeaway of all this um, – you know, I, I wrote down some final notes here. I thought, number one, um, I feel like I was pretty lucky. And by that, um, number one, I mean, I guess the biggest thing I feel lucky about is that I wasn't associated um, with, you know, I don't want to say associated with Satanism, but it's weird. Um, but, I, you know, I think the, the adults in my life knew I was a smart kid and that I was a curious kid and that I was going to read about all kinds of topics and sometimes those topics are, you know, palatable and sometimes they're not. And so, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that, uh, um, even when listening to the music I listened to and, and, uh, you know, watching horror movies and stuff, I don't think anybody ever felt that I was going down some weird path. Um, and, but I, but I do feel lucky, you know, I mean, there were kids, you know, like that kid, uh, there's one kid, you know, I mentioned the one in high school. I don't even remember his name. All I remember is that he always had pentagrams on his pants and, and on his locker and stuff, you know. And so I, I, that's not how I want to be remembered. And that's not, not the uh, imagery that I necessarily want to uh, identify with, you know. So, um, you know, I, I do just kind of feel lucky that that, that stuff just kind of came and went, you know. Uh, a takeaway I have is that knowledge isn't dangerous. You know, I don't feel like by reading some of the paperbacks that I read or looking up Wikipedia articles or whatever, I don't think that makes you a bad person. I think that makes you a curious person. I think we make the best decisions by gathering the most amount of information that we can uh, gather, you know. And so that's certainly how I, as a kid, man, I read uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of books. Like I, I was just, uh, I was reading stuff all the time, you know, and just, uh, I was like number five, need input, you know? 
so, um, uh, yeah, I don't think that's that's bad necessarily to uh, you know to read and to to learn about things. Uh, again, I wrote this down. I touched on this earlier, but there is the argument about um, you know possibly being influenced by what you surround yourself with, and uh, to a certain extent, I agree with that. You know, I think if you literally, you know, if you're uh, well, I think we've seen that with the uh, the political climate over the past several years. Like the people that are around you, those are probably the people that you're going to agree with. You know, regardless of what that is. Um, so, you know, I think the parents that try to intervene with us over the ways, Coach Pierce and Betty and these other people, um, you know, I think that's that's kind of what they were trying to do. Uh, was you know. If you if you surround yourself with uh, you know bad stuff quote unquote bad stuff then you're going to be influenced by bad stuff you know um, th- there was an argument you know when I was a kid was if you hang out with people that are you know doing drugs or drinking you know you're probably going to do that stuff because you're hanging out with those kids and, and it's a, a logical thing to assume so um, you know so I, I do see that side of the argument for sure. Uh, and the last takeaway I put on here was that I, mass hysteria is a real thing. You know, there were, I mean, no, I, don't, I was going to say hundreds of people. There were millions of people that were concerned about this satanic panic, you know, um, you know, things like Dungeons and Dragons. There were a lot more people upset about Dungeons and Dragons than people who actually played Dungeons and Dragons. You know what I mean? So uh, once these things caught on in the media or through churches or, you know, however the ideas got out, um, they got people to agree with them without really understanding what uh, you know what the actual issues were. So it was an interesting time to have lived through. It's it's a strange uh, thing where you could uh, you know throw up the devil horns or <laughs> draw something so simple as a star in a circle on a textbook and then immediately get labeled as a uh, evil person. Interesting times. So. Anyway, that wraps up uh, my uh, experiences with uh, the Satanic Panic. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hare at robohare.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com uh, forward slash robcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on my podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. This show would not be possible without the support of my many patrons. All patrons of my show get behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out how you can support my show, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. I'd like to give a shout-out to all my Patreon supporters. My 8-bit supporters are Alan Hennessy, Alan Hudgens, oh, I scrolled too far, Armadon Restel, Brian Barr, Perry Clanton, Chris Folds, C-Dubs, Cowbird Boy, Dan Paradroid Heavey, Darren Folds, David Velociraptor, David Chambers, David Hearn, David Modelak, Eric Stryanisi, Garrett Allier, Gary Heather, 
Graham W. Vemke, Jake Nonamaker, Jason Warrens, John Bodokar Schaller, John Treholt, Jose Cazada, Joshua Eckroth, Mark Alley, Mike McLaughlin, Mitsuyama, Mr. Bundy, Mr. Wacky, Nathan Dagenhart, Olaf Hope, Patrick Markey, Rydar and Christopher Bow, Retro Trace, Rick Reynolds, Roy Jacobs, Scooter Prime, Scott Lambert, Scrap Arcade, Stephen Burt, Stephen Rasmussen, The Slow Norris, Zeep Pabsky, Zerfall, and The Mysterious Cobra Kai. Extra special thanks to my 16-bit supporters, Boar's Head Tavern BBS, Dan Creek, Dave Zilly, Edward Smith, John Morrison, Matt Nicholson, Scott Van Dracet, Steve Sharippa, and Vintage Volts. I do feel like saying some sort of disclaimer that just because uh, these people support my show doesn't mean they necessarily support the content of my shows. <laughs> and so uh, this podcast is uh, my ideas and my idea alone and does not reflect the view of my Patreon supporters. Um, you Don't Know Flack is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and my RSS feed at podcast.robohara.com. To hear more podcasts from me like Sprite Castle, Cactus Flax, Throwback Reviews, and Multiple Sadness, visit podcast.robohara.com for links to these shows. Congratulations. If you made it this far, you know a little bit more about Flack and Satan. <laughs> See you next time.